0: I'm really proud to say that this episode of All Things Climbing is made possible by Rhino Skin Solutions. If you're anything like me, you've been climbing for a long time and have given too little thought to taking good care of your skin. It's not that I've never had skin issues as a climber, it's just that I'd never considered it something I could manage and improve on. As I slowly became more serious about advancing my climbing, I spent countless hours in training sessions, scrutinizing various hangboard protocols, agonizing over whether I was training too much, too little, etc. That type of training is important, but it should be obvious that it has major blind spots. I knew at the time that my technique would have to be worked on separately, but I hadn't really absorbed the idea that I needed to take care of my skin separately as well. Between hangboarding, the occasional canvas board session, and especially climbing on nice new plastic holds in the gym, my training sessions often came to a halt not because I was totally worked, but because my skin hurt too much. After missing a series of workouts entirely because of a blister and a small split, I realized I was losing ground simply because I wasn't paying attention to the whole system. Strong fingers are important, but you also need strong connective tissue, and similarly you need healthy skin. It turns out some very smart folks have thought a lot about this problem and developed precise tools to get your skin into the condition it needs to be in to perform optimally. Maybe, like me, your skin is too damp and you need to not grease off holes. Maybe your skin is too dry and you're dry-firing off big moves or splitting your skin on sharp crimps. Whatever the case may be, Rhino Skin has your solution. After all, it's fine to punt because you're not yet strong enough, it's not fine to come up empty handed because you haven't taken care of your skin. Their products are non-greasy and effective, and you should check them out simply because they're the best available in the space. But if you need another reason to check out Rhino Skin, owner and founder Justin Brown is himself a devoted climber and Smith Rock local who sits on the board of the Smith Rock Group and is dedicated to improving the resources we all enjoy. As I mentioned at the top of the first episode, I'm donating all the money we bring in from the show after our production costs to the American Safe Climbing Association and the Access Fund. That means that neither Blister nor I are taking a dime from the show, and instead we're turning everything over to those two organizations. Justin is just as psyched to give back to the community as I am, so check out his hard work over at Rhinoskin Solutions and use promo code BLISTER when you check out. you get 10% off your order, and Rhinoskin will donate an additional 10% to the Access Fund, which is pretty amazing. Now, on to our conversation with Phil Powers. Hey everyone, I'm Dave Alley, and this is All Things Climbing. The American Alpine Club is one of the central institutions in American climbing. Having been around since 1902, it's also one of the oldest. At its core, the AAC is a nationwide nonprofit with over 20,000 members offering a range of benefits and services, including rescue services, discounts on gear and lodging, resources for expedition planning, and grants awarded to fund trips around the globe. They also deploy their resources to do important work benefiting the community at large in areas such as public policy, land management, and education. As just one example, the AAC was on Capitol Hill this past week for an event called Climb the Hill, where they were joined by the Access Fund and a handful of professional climbers including Lynn Hill, Sasha DeJulian, Alex Honnold, and Tommy Caldwell to advocate for public lands and educate lawmakers and land managers on the importance of outdoor recreation. Despite all that, it's easy these days for climbers to find the sport and not be acutely aware of the AAC, what it is that they do, or why we modern climbers should care about a seemingly antiquated mountaineering club. So today we're talking with American Alpine Club CEO Phil Powers. Phil is himself an extremely accomplished mountaineer and rock climber, with notable ascents including the Washburn face on Denali and K2 without supplemental oxygen. We met him at the AAC headquarters in Golden to talk about his own climbing before diving into the organization itself, specifically what role the American Alpine Club plays in the climbing universe, how they're adapting to the rapidly growing sport, and why it's so important that they're a nonprofit. Check it out. So um, I have a couple quick questions for you about your own climbing. Mm -hmm. Um, I wonder, do you, if I were to force you, would you be able to identify more or principally with one sub-discipline of of climbing? Or do you sort of think of yourself as a, you know, uh, just capital C climber?
1: I'm a rock climber. Okay. I I mean, I have done, I spent... I've been climbing for a long, long time, 40 years, more than 40 years. And I spent a lot of time in the Himalaya and on big alpine routes and on big walls and on ice climbs in Canada and guiding in South America and all that stuff. But when you get right down to it, what would I rather do? I'd rather go up a long route in El Dorado.
0: Yeah. Okay. Um, that's Pretty remarkable to you hear you think of yourself that way, with you know summoning K two without oxygen and, and so forth. That's like, you know, that's a that's a that's a real a real crown jewel for a category that you don't even particularly <laughs> identify with, I suppose.
1: Well, now, yeah,
0: yeah, fair enough. Um, what uh, what was that like, by the way? Can you? I mean, that's just such an out K
1: two. Yes, um, I climbed. Tried to climb K two in nineteen ninety. It was a big struggle. We had tough weather. We were the only team on the mountain. Um, uh, we just couldn't do it. I mean, we did get a weather window and we were just too wiped out by then to, to give it a decent shot. Um, when I went back in 1993, it was kind of a magical trip in many respects. Um, the weather was on our side, uh, you know, altitude's a funny thing. You can, you can, you can be in shape and ready to acclimatize and even good at acclimatizing and still have a bad trip, um. But on that trip, I had a good trip, and, you know, I think it was only, like, 30 days into the trip, including the approach, and we were on the summit. Um, so I acclimatized and got ready and then climbed the mountain in two days and came down on the third. Uh, so pretty fast ascent. Um, uh, so for me, I felt good, and I had a great day on summit day, and I think there's a lot of luck involved in that. Um Uh, It was hard for the guys I was with. Uh, One of them really struggled with altitude on the way up, but still got to the summit, which was amazing. And then the other guy seemed to be not struggling so much, but took a fall on the descent and fell to his death. Um, So, yeah, so here I described kind of a a magical trip in terms of things coming together, and we had this huge tragedy. So, you know, the 8,000-meter game um, is, uh, fraught, of course, with the potential for, for bad outcomes.
0: Is that something that was more, um, I guess just a staple of you when you were, you know, a younger, more excited climber and you've maybe moved away from the more dangerous aspects of climbing or is that not the case and you're just out of the hem oh, I'm,
1: I'm uh, less fond of danger than ever. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, I I think a lot, you know a lot of things can com- contribute to that. I've had my fair share of accidents and uh you know I have a family that depends on me and I I want to be here for that next mortgage payment. Yeah. Um but uh I also think uh, I was never uh I think I've always been a very conservative person. I think I've done some some things that people might look at and think of as risky, but my approach, my my demeanor, my Sort of the way I the way I operate has always been really conservative, really thoughtful, um, i've I've definitely gotten myself into situations that were outside that envelope, uh, sure. but I wasn't happy there right
0: yeah yeah, fair enough. Um, I guess I forgot to do this at the ha- at the start, but would you mind just introducing yourself
1: real quick? Yeah, my name's Phil Powers, and I'm the CEO here at the American Alpine Club. I've been here at the American Alpine Club for. almost 13 years now. And, um, you know, in the beginning we really worried about membership and it was all about getting members and, you know, we we have 20,000 people. It's a very strong community now. And now we worry more about welcoming people and what's that composition. And are we making sure that everyone has access?
0: So this is probably a good time for, um, for a bit of an outline about the American Alpine Club, but do you mind just describing, I guess, the club to folks who are probably aware of the Alpine Club, but maybe don't have, maybe they have like a somewhat amorphous view of what yeah. you guys do.
1: Yeah. Um, you know, our, our mission really is to share our passion for climbing and to protect the places we climb, you know, but uh, really what the, the the club is at its core is sort of a benefits and services organization. You pay your dues, and you get certain, certain benefits and services back for those dues. One of them is the rescue benefit. You fall anywhere on Earth, we come get you, we get you to the nearest hospital. Uh, one of those benefits is our lodging network. Uh, you want to stay in the Tetons or at the New River Gorge or in the Gunks, we've got a, a place to camp or sleep there at a discount for you. Uh, we've also got a larger network around the world for you to partake of. Uh, You want information? We've got a library, and we publish the journal, and we publish accidents in North American climbing. Um, You want gear? We've got a program that allows you to get gear at a discounted rate. So all of those things are effectively benefits that serve climbers. You pay your dues, you get those benefits, it's a great deal. Um, Beyond that is where the mission of the organization really comes to life. So with that sort of aggregated amount of money and in that aggregated number of people, we can do other great things, mostly in education, policy, and um, certainly also in just the building or the, the support for a community. Um, we've got about 50 chapters around the country, and they serve as really great social environments for climbers, uh, especially in places where it's not already there because of a climbing gym or crag. Um, one, one thing that I think is important to recognize is that there's just bigger numbers now, right? More people are doing it. More people have fallen in love with this activity. The climbing gyms have helped with that, but other things have helped with that. Climbing's in a bit of a moment that way.
0: Do you think that that's going to be – I guess uh, we can get into this more later because I do want to talk about about the American Alpine Club But you raise a really interesting point, and that is that is that an upward trajectory that's going to be sustained by climbing's entrance into the Olympics? Or is climbing sort of uh, experiencing a bubble?
1: I tend to believe it's a little bit more of a bubble. I mean, I think we've all seen things that looked really sustainable just go away. Um, And I don't think this is going to go away. But I do think it's a little bit of a bubble. And I would not – I mean, it may be that the Olympics bring a lot of attention to climbing – um, I almost see it the other way around. I think climbing's in the Olympics because climbing got popular on its own. And so then, then organizations like the Olympics recognized that and said, oh, look, this is popular. People are doing it. We should, we should get on the bag- bandwagon as opposed to the Olympics noticing us and suddenly we're going to grow. I don't think there's going to be – this is just my opinion. I don't think there's going to be a big bubble of growth out of the Olympics. There might be a bubble of need for explanation um, yeah. <laughs> and confusion, but I, I, I think we're already in kind of the steepest of the growth curves right now. Um, and I think, you know, what I was going to say with regard to the American Alpine Club that's salient here is that for all the decades up until literally like this decade, climbing was small enough that most people could learn from a friend how to do it. You could learn from your uncle or your aunt or your mom or your sister. Uh, and, and now those numbers just don't sustain that. So now for the first time ever, we really have a responsibility to improve our more formal training, how people learn to climb, whether it's from an amateur organization or a professional organization like a guide service. Uh, we as the institutions in climbing owe it to this growth to make sure that we're out there teaching people in enough numbers to meet the need, but also with high enough quality to get people to be safe and competent and comfortable.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think that's extremely, extremely true. You know, with my own experience, not even looking that far back and into climbing, but you, you know, you mentioned back, let's say 15 years ago, 20 years ago, you could learn from your friends and all of that stuff. It's even. I would go even further than that and say you almost had to, because mm-hmm. there was so little centralized um, resources, mm-hmm. so few centralized resources, and
1: um, now there's gyms everywhere. And gyms will and gyms will teach you very well to a point, right? Uh, But if you want to go outside to the crag, that's another group of people like the regional clubs or, you know, and lots of people are doing it. You could learn with the Boy Scouts. Um, But we want to I think the role we can play at the American Alpine Club is help those teachers talk to each other, uh, learn the signal systems that each other are using, gain some consistency and then. Already, now, but over time in the future as well, we're going to start certifying instructors. And, and when I say that, I'm sure it sounds scary to people. Like, I just teach climbing, and I'm now going to have to go get a certificate. Our goal is to do that in a way that's very attainable, not expensive, not onerous. But let's make sure that the people teaching climbing are talking about it with each other and teaching to a certain standard
0: you know, historically, I think there's a combination of factors, the uh, apprenticeship culture, the fact that climbing was more of a fringe thing in the past I and mean, it's golden age and that kind of thing. But it really fostered this environment of localized climbing cultures around even the US, right, where things are done quite differently than other places, both in terms of ethic, in terms of fi- approach to fix hardware. And, um, and that, you know, that that creates just different practices and different opinions and so forth. And, and like you mentioned, that's sort of That seems like it's very in line with that ethic of personal responsibility, Mm -hmm. which I think is one of, whether or not climbers think about this acutely or not, that seems like one of the most deeply ingrained cultural things in climbing is like you are ultimately responsible. Yes, you are in charge of yourself. You, you know, you can see it in... Um, the scorn that's heaped upon people who call in rescues unnecessarily. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, and deservedly so if you're putting other people at risk. But that's just sort of something that we, you know, we hold really dear. And that, that is chall- – all that, that whole system seems like it's going to be challenged once you have all these people coming in. And well, so I said
1: a word earlier in re- with regard to education, then that word was consistency, mm-hmm. right? So we've talked about personal responsibility, freedom – the sort of counterculture, if you will, that climbing grew up in, and then this need as we go forward for consistency. And you mentioned yourself that we're, we're getting to a, a place where we've got a wider variety of people that might be climbing together. Very experienced person with a novice person who's actually very good at climbing. Um, and so you've got this experience gap in terms of your systems knowledge, and in, cur- in terms of your safety systems, in terms of your communication skills, and the solution to that often is consistency. If you all do it the same way, then the likelihood of error goes way down. Yeah. But that's counter to a lot of this culture we came from. Exactly. My, you know, y- you and I would agree if I said there's 10 different ways to do that thing. Sure there are. There are 10 different value, valid ways to build an anchor for this situation. There are more than 10. But There are a few basic premises that we should all adhere to and we should all be able to agree agree on. And that consistency is starting to become very important in this world of diversity, diversity of experience, diversity of geographic location. We travel a lot now. So, you know, there are some dynamics here that are kind of hard for climbing right now.
0: Yeah, extremely. I mean, you know, in the past, because of all the stuff we were just talking about, climbing seems like it's been extremely resistant to that kind t- of like centralized top-down management. And I think that the case for that kind of centralized management becomes stronger and stronger for the reasons that you just mentioned. And, you know, personally, I, I like to think that I'm kind of agnostic because I really see – like I feel very convinced by – the, the merits of, of both sides of this like climbing should be left on its own versus well people are really getting hurt and it's a very different sport than it was and so we need to manage the now, not mm-hmm. pretend that we're in the past.
1: I think the trick is to supply what you called top-down management, what I might call a little bit of leadership, but to supply that in a in a truly collaborative fashion. Where you don't come in and say my way or the highway, you come in and say, let's get together and let's decide together on some systems that work. Let's decide together on how to teach climbing signals so that someone from New Hampshire can communicate well with someone from California. And, but let's not have someone in a vacuum at some, on high decide that for us. Let's get everyone together, New Hampshire and California and New Mexico and Maine, and let's talk it through and do it collaboratively, which takes a lot of time and effort, but you end up owning it together And I think that's where we're at in our education program is really trying to get the people teaching together and everyone's got something to bring to the table. You know, there are tricks of the trade across the country that we can all benefit from, but getting them in the room and having some tough debates, admittedly, uh, and then coming together and say, great, there's 10 ways to do it, but let's do it this way, especially when we're teaching young people or new people so that we don't confuse each other.
0: Do you see when we were talking a moment ago about the um, the conversations about how to adapt to these changes, do you see the American Alpine Club as um, chairing that discussion, I guess?
1: I don't know if that chairing is the right word. I think we have put some energy into convening, uh, but I think we're part of an ecosystem, really. So we're we're a national organization. There are a number of other great national organizations with missions that are either similar to ours, or bump up against ours, or touch ours, and I try to, we try to get together and make sure that we're working well together. The Access Fund, the AMGA, the the uh, USA Climbing, uh, the Climbing Wall Association. We try to make sure that we're not just operating in a vacuum; that we're talking with each other so that that ecosystem is meeting the need and not assuming that any one organization is like in charge or meeting the need alone, because it is bigger than any one of us. The same is true regionally. I also try to get together with the regional clubs and understand what they're doing and understand what their public policy needs are at the local level, but maybe where they don't have as much access at the national level, and we can help in D.C. or on federal policy, uh, or the access fund maybe could help. Um, so I see it more as an ecosystem that we're a player in a part of, um, sometimes we end up having the resources to be more of the convener because we just are a little bit bigger, but that's more just a, a fact of, of history than anything. So, um, uh, I think it's more about the ecosystem than about leadership or who's in charge.
0: Yeah, and, um, and you guys – so there's the benefits and then further beyond that, there's the mission that you mentioned. And, and that, that latter portion is where I, I think – I imagine you might run up against some of the other organizations that you talked about where you like share a boundary with like the access fund sure, and so forth.
1: sure. Take the American Mountain Guides Association, for example. There's no organization in the United States running a better education program for mountain guides. Slam dunk, well done – excellent work, but it's aimed at mountain guides, mountain guides who are going to be capable of taking people into the mountains at a very high level, very high standard rock climbing or alpine climbing or backcountry skiing. Um, So though they do a great job, uh, they're not teaching the amateur leaders in the world. So really their impact is on a small percentage of the people out there, quote, teaching climbing. So that's where we try to fill in a gap below. We try to do what we can to help those teachers who are volunteers and 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 teaching, you know, in their local communities uh, on the weekends as amateurs. We help them uh, become more consistent. So you're right. There's a boundary there that is somewhat fungible between the low end of what the AMGA might choose to do and, the upper end, we're not anywhere close to that uh, are what me we, we might choose to do. same with the access fund. you know the access Fund does great public policy work around the nation. Uh, they do excellent work at the local level. they do excellent work on climbing management plans uh, and they're our deepest longest partners in public policy work. Just becomes true though that more is better than fewer when it comes to the battles we face. Especially in this current administration, um, and it also becomes true that sometimes slightly different attitudes can be effective. You know, right now the Access Fund is involved in a lawsuit against our uh, uh, the current administration. Um, that's a particular way to to have that conversation. That frees us up to have the conversation in a slightly different way. Um, so we believe uh, that we are better together than having one of us get out of the game. We operate Climb the Hill every year together. We together, and we've added the AMGA as a partner in this, go to Washington, D.C. We bring a bunch of celebrity climbers. We bring our policy wonks. We bring some of our board members. And we have 50 to 70 meetings on Capitol Hill in one day, kind of a blitzkrieg of uh, climbers, Speaking out for what they need, whether it's lowered fees or greater access or more public lands or different designations for those public lands or funding the Land and Water Conservation Fund, whatever it may be. Um, but, but we operate that together, and I think it's better because we're in it together than trying to do it alone. Um, but again, you're right. That's a place where we might nudge up against each other, and that's why we need to talk. Same with USA Climbing. I mean, USA Climbing and the Access Fund both were born out of the American Alpine Club. Uh, Access Fund in 1991, later in the, 90s, in the 90s, USA Climbing, because the AAC just can't do it all. Uh, we can't govern competition climbing in America, so USA Climbing does a great job of that. We're about to do the same spinoff for the ski mountaineering associations. We're about to do the same spinoff for the ice climbing groups, because... They are poised to be recognized by the United States Olympic Committee in the near future. So um, we end up incubating a lot of these places and then partnering with them at a later date. And you're right, at some level, even competing with them for, you know, mind share and, and, you know, negotiating where that line in the sand really should be.
0: Sure, and I imagine you know yeah. there's some degree of like cannibalizing each other's funds and that kind of thing. When you know, certain, there's like a a little bit of a zero sum game with how much people are going to give to certain organizations. But you know, I think that's very that's very well said. And I you know I I do um, I do happen to totally agree with you about about how how more is better there. And I think that maybe the best the best example of how that gets put to work is what you were mentioning a second ago with if the access fund wants to take a litigious approach to a certain issue, that's great. But, you know, then that maybe means that they can't credibly have that same conversation in a very different tone. And so, you know... Now,
1: now, that said, the access fund's pretty good and pretty nimble, and they're they're capable of trying to do it both ways. Um, But not only is it nice to have... A couple of organizations paying attention to this I mean, in, in the conservation world in general. You've got dozens of organizations paying attention to this. But we're talking about climbing here. Um, but it's even better. And I think it's true in the current environment. But it's even better if those organizations are are collaborating. You know, it's one thing to have two different organizations operating. But it's even better if they can strategize together. Yeah, for we'll sure. Do this we will do that. Whichever's working, you know, we'll, we'll celebrate.
0: So, to zoom out even a little bit further on that point, why do we as climbers need a nonprofit at the center of all this? Like, why does the nexus of this conversation need to be occupied by a nonprofit as opposed to um, the brands stepping in and managing this stuff or uh, the public sector saying we're going to take care of this stuff because it happens on so much of it happens in the national parks or Forest Service land? I mean, why? Why, why you guys? Why the nonprofit sector?
1: I think that's a great question. So let's divide the world, if you will, into uh, the for-profit sector, companies that can, in theory, make a profit by doing something, uh, the government, uh, an, an institution that provides an infrastructure that no one else could provide, and then this amorphous thing in the middle called the nonprofit sector. Um, well, the brands really should be making money. They've got owners, they've got shareholders, they produce product, they produce apparel, and their goal is to produce great, well-designed equipment or whatever and sell it at a profit so that they can share that profit with their shareholders or with their employees or with their owners, right? So if there's a lodging facility that's going to lose money, why would they do that? So that's the for-profit sector. The government has a whole different mission. It should be creating the environment in which we can thrive. Right? We need a transportation infrastructure so that we can thrive. So they can build us highways and highways and rails and and airports, or at least you know have the uh, the infrastructure for the airports. Yeah. Um, and then the pri- the the for-profit brands can. Put the airplanes to use and the and the, and sell the cars to use that infrastructure productively. Um, the The stuff that we do is the stuff in the middle. You know, if there's a if there's a uh, the need for a lodging facility and people are willing to pay enough for a hotel to make its money, well then we don't we're not needed there. But if on the other hand. You're talking about a bunch of climbers who go on six-month trips and live out of their vans for three months at a time or whatever it is. Those people are not staying in $150 hotel rooms every night. So there's something in the middle that the private sector is not going to supply, and there are many places where the government has not supplied it, and that's where we come in. Same with rescue benefits. Uh, Happily, in the United States, most places where you get injured, there is a volunteer infrastructure to help you. It's born out of the sheriff's, sheriff's office or the search and rescue teams in a particular place. Or if you're in the national parks, the Park Service does it. Happily, in the United States, you're likely to get rescued if people know you need to be rescued and they know where you are. Uh, so our rescue benefit is helpful, but it's really helpful internationally where there might not be an infrastructure like that. So if you fall in Nepal, you're going to want to be an AAC member.
0: So I hear a lot about the rescue benefit. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've been an Alpine Club member for a long, long time myself. But I, in conversation, I also hear a lot of uh, disagreement amongst people about what exactly the rescue benefit
1: is. So would you mind just kind of giving me the overview of how that works? So it's a benefit. It's not insurance. It's a benefit. So we uh, have a service provider, Global Rescue, and they – provide this service to our members for the cost of their dues up to a certain threshold, right? So you make the call, uh, the rescue gets gets delivered to you, um, and our rescue benefit covers the first $7,500 of that bill. Average rescue is about $7,000. So in most cases, that's going to cover the cost. If it happens up in Clear Creek or or, you know, in Western Canada— or uh, a fairly easy-to-access place in Nepal, that number might cover it. Rescues can be more expensive than that, though. So this rescue benefit covers the first $7,500. If you think you're going to a place where it's likely that those rescues are going to be much more expensive, we suggest that you buy up a better policy from global rescue to cover that potential. So if you're going to Antarctica or Tajikistan, uh, where the infrastructure is less available and the rescue, the helicopter could have to travel a lot further and those costs could go way up. We recommend that you think that through and make a good decision back to that personal responsibility piece.
0: So does Global Rescue, is that, are they an independent organization that you sort of. Private, private contractor. Okay. Uh, and then essentially the, one of the benefits from the American Alpine Club membership is basically like their, their baseline model. It's of
1: below their baseline model. You couldn't get this in the open market.
0: Okay. Okay. That makes a lot of sense. Um, and then they operate, are there places that they do and don't operate?
1: Uh, there are places they're better and less good. (laughs) Uh, but what they're very good at is preparing. So if you think you're going to a place where you don't know whether they're good or not good, you just call them and let them know. And they'll a tell you and B they'll put infrastructure in place to prepare. So, so we're one of the reasons they work with us is because we end up climbers go unique places. You know, climbers they look around for first ascents and new routes and they find these places that nobody's been before. And Global Rescue hasn't been there before. Nobody's been there before. So one of the things that Global Rescue likes about us is they learn through us where people might go. And then they can start to prepare the infrastructure necessary, not for just for us, but for any of their other clientele that may go there eventually, too.
0: Yeah, I mean, because a lot of those climbers probably figured out how to get to said location in your library, right? Right, right, right. <laughs> so,
1: or from the journal.
0: Yeah, yeah. exactly. And um, you mentioned, um, you know, a rescue in Clear Creek versus a rescue in, in Nepal and so forth. Um but then we also, at the start of it, you were talking about how in a lot of these places there are established groups like Alpine Rescue here right. in the Front Range or, you know, the National Park Service or whatever. So I get injured in Clear Creek. Do I call Global Rescue as an American if you get
1: injured in Clear Creek, you do two things. You dial 911 and you call Global Rescue. Now, you could argue that in Clear Creek, the, the Alpine Rescue and the Golden Fire Department are so on their game that we don't need Global Rescue to get involved. Um, And so sometimes they don't get called. It is what it is. But I would argue you still call Global Rescue, and for this reason. One, they'll look over the shoulder of what's going on. They won't get in the way. They won't bother anyone. But they'll become aware of what's happening. And then as a result of doing that, they become this really helpful communication piece. So they coordinate between agencies. Let's say... uh, uh, Flight for Life is busy that day. Well, Global Rescue might be able to just at that moment say, we have a a contract with a helicopter in Georgetown that we can make available. So, you know, every once in a while they solve a problem that otherwise might not be solved. Also, they're very good at communicating with families. So suddenly you get this compassionate communicator with your family, and they're making sure your family knows what's going on. The third thing that they they will do after you're brought to the hospital, they'll, if necessary, make sure that there are second opinions available on your care. Uh, They've got a contract with Johns Hopkins University. Now, if you're at a Denver hospital, we don't need necessarily Johns Hopkins telling these doctors to do something differently. But if you were in Srinagar, you might. So, global rescue is worth calling in every circumstance. Now, that doesn't mean you don't call nine one one when you're in the United States. I mean, we built this system for a reason. So, dial nine one one, or if you're in the national park and you call park dispatch, feel free to make that call. But call global rescue too. So, and if you're in if Switzerland, just call global rescue.
0: Yeah, totally. And you know, I was thinking. Um, I guess it, it's, uh, that question was almost an academic one, just because you know. In practical terms, if I get injured here, I live in Golden. If I get injured here, I would just call 911 and I know or at least have close access to, like, the Alpine Rescue folks. That's a no-brainer for me. I would kind of know how to handle that. But instead, like, if I'm traveling around the country to climb— knowing that no matter where you are, you can just call Global okay. Rescue. Instead of each crag you go to be like, well, what is the local volunteer rescue service and how equipped are they, how competent are they, right? We, you and I, live in this incredibly fortunate or place what where... what is
1: 911 going to actually get me here at Smith Rocks? You might not. Exactly. Know. Now, it turns out that at Smith Rocks, it's going to get you great care. Right. But there may be places where it's a little uneven.
0: And less open-ended, yeah. right? Um, so... Th- I guess one of the other benefits that you mentioned earlier that I would like to drill down a little bit on is the uh, accidents in North American Mountaineering Journal. Mm-hmm. So the two the other sister journal that you guys publish is the American Alpine Journal, which yeah. records the major ascents of you know is it entirely alpine climbs or no?
1: We we call it the we we say the world's most significant climbs over the over the years. It's kind of been grade four and above plus mountains. So it's either mountains or grade four and above. Um, now, climbing is such a dynamic activity that the world's most significant climbs might be a boulder problem. Um, and the journal doesn't do a great job of that category. So we've really, we say, the mo- world's most significant big climbs. Yeah.
0: Well, it is the American Alpine Journal, right? And so there is right, that.
1: right. We're the American Alpine Club, but we're also the only national club for climbers. And we try to be as welcoming and relevant for a sport climber, as we are for an alpine climber, the fact that we have that name does not mean that we discriminate among climbers.
0: Yeah. Okay, that's that's a very fair point. Um, the American Al- the, the Alpine Journal I find, really interesting to read. It's 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 lighter, just enjoyment for me. The accidents in North American mountaineering book is riveting, but also extremely educational in a way that the Alpine Journal is not. Right. And um, I think that that has been one of the most uh, affecting educational resources that I have encountered because I think that I um like I, I've been able to take away a lot of lessons from you know reading all of them. Sometimes you're like, oh, I would not have thought of that. That's a good suggestion. This, this, that. Or but sometimes
1: you're like, oh, I would have thought about. It.
0: I I can't believe they didn't. <laughs> yeah, ex- absolutely. And you know that I think that you know that it allows you to reading them, reading the whole book, or reading them year in year out isn't necessarily about like, ooh, finding the people who got hurt on a route that you've done and like reading the gossipy details. It's more, I think there's this really, this higher level use of, you can see what the, the, the danger trends are, right? Like you piece together these common threads. And one of them that is sort of striking to me would be, um, I guess just to choose an example, the fact that if you look at the journal, it seems like the accidents tend to skew towards easier routes. And I don't know if that's necessarily strictly true, but I think it. The lesson that I certainly took from that is that complacency is extremely dangerous. Um, but then, in addition, climbing much like I guess the rest of life, to, you know, to touch on our previous conversation is that there's such a surviving the learning curve mm-hmm. thing where if you can get through to where you fully understand the systems that you routinely use, you're much safer than when you are actively in the learning process.
1: Yeah, I think you're making a reasonable point, and it kind of goes back to, you know, where do car accidents happen? They happen within a few blocks of your house. Well, that's for two reasons. One, you're within a few blocks of your house more than you are anywhere else. And two, you're more complacent there. Um, I think you're right that there are... It's an unforgiving activity because of the vertical environment, right? A mistake is not easily forgiven because if you fall a long ways, you get hurt real bad. Um, and so surviving that learning curve, you're right, is an important and maybe somewhat tenuous space. At the same time, you're likely to be super supervised during that period by a friend or a family member or a teacher. Uh, so there's that. The other thing, though, we all have to recognize is that complacency is just a as big a killer as uh, lack of knowledge and so that's why I tell my students I say the knot the you need to check most is mine right I'm the guy here that's most likely to be distracted by paying attention to you I'm the guy here that's most likely to take this all for granted because I've tied this knot 20,000 times. Uh, I'm the guy we need to worry about the most. I need the check just as much as you do.
0: Right. And that's, that's really the point is not that, not that beginner climbers are more accident prone than experienced climbers, but beginner climbs tend to host more accidents for that reason. Yeah.
1: Beginner activities, if you will. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So, um, that was like, I think that was a real aha moment for me reading through the journal. I wonder, are there any other, like you, you know, you see these things come in year in, year out and, Do you see these, like, larger trends in there that you wish you could sort of distill and communicate to people?
1: Well, if you read the last few uh, uh, annual Accidents in North American Climbing publications, you'll see something at the back called Know the Ropes. And it's our educational piece that we add to every book. And what we try to do is identify either something that's trending, and that's a negative thing uh or or something that we just haven't addressed in a while and we try to teach that to the community so maybe it's one year here, here we go again people are rappelling off the end of their rope again let's let's visit rappelling um here we go again people are not uh are getting confused between lowering and rappelling let's revisit sport climbing you know protocol uh here we have a big year in scrambling injuries. Let's talk about scrambling, you know, third-class climbing and, and maybe low, fourth-class, easy roped climbing. So if you go to the back and you read the know, know the Ropes, you'll see our diagnosis of what we think the trend was the year before so- and, our, and then our, our attempt at teaching to that.
0: Is it fair to say that, you know, you're identifying those trends as – you're sort of like a lagging indicator, right? You're seeing the accidents and identifying the trends. It's
1: not a science. It's not statistical as much as what we sort of glean from the reports that have been delivered and what we've heard in the environment. Now, we've got a lot of aware people doing that analysis, but it's not statistical as much as it is, um, you know, uh, anecdotal.
0: So there's – yeah, and, you know, because – because of being the lagging, I guess, indicator, there's like – I imagine – and maybe this is not the case, but I imagine there's a little bit of inherent frustration in that fact in the sense that you're you're sort of summarizing accidents that have already happened. And I wonder internally or with you personally if it's the kind of thing where that fuels the interest in the education stuff that we've talked about or maybe the way that you execute to say, well – I'm sick of just picking out and identifying the commonalities of the accidents that are happening and reporting on it. I'd rather figure out what those trends are and get out in front of them with the education stuff and try to nip some of these stories before they happen. Is that- That's exactly
1: right. The other maybe, I mean, that's exactly right. The education program is specifically born out of our expertise in understanding what the trends are and what the accidents are and what is needed in the marketplace. Uh, The other thing that's true is that these things keep coming back right? So you might argue that we're, we're lagging, you know, we report what happened and then we teach to how to solve that problem. But three years from now, that problem's going to be back at the top of the list again. It comes back. It's not like people stopped propelling off the end of their rope. Uh, the accidents go down for a few years and they sneak back up. And so just like statistical reversion to the norm. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So, um, yeah. And <laughs> I guess, uh, you know, moving forward with those like anticipated trends is this the kind of thing where you feel like it's it's like that old you know military adage of we're always we're very prepared to fight the previous war mm-hmm. you know as climate changes are we going to be knowing what where the blind spots are and you know is that is that a uh, that's
1: a that's a valid concern, and I would by no means profess to say that that our editorial team or our education team is somehow able to predict the future better than anyone else. Uh, and there are a lot of people out there climbing and inventing new tools and inventing new techniques. Um, uh, you know, I don't, I don't expect a bunch of people to take up free soloing because Alex Honnold's really cool. Um, but I could be I don't wrong. Either. I could be wrong. Um, yeah. I think, you know, it's interesting. We, we just gave Alex Honnold our... Award for Climbing Achievement, the Underhill Award. And it was a really interesting conversation because, uh, you know, soloing gone awry is an ugly thing. Um, rescuers have to get involved and people have to clean up the mess. And it's not really soloing, right? There's more people involved. Your family's involved. Uh, uh, and, and happily, that has not been the case with Alex at all, and nor do I think it ever will be. I really have a high regard for the guy. But it was an interesting conversation when we chose to give him that award. And we gave him that award because he very much deserved it and because it was achievement that we could hardly even imagine. But at the same time, let me be clear, we believe in partnership. There is a real value in being out there with someone else who can help you think through a problem, who can give you a belay, who can check your knot. So while, on the one hand, we're willing to acknowledge that this is a special, amazing circumstance and we can honor it, we still, on the other hand, would say, honestly, we believe in, in partnership.
0: Yeah, all right. I mean, I'm 100% with you on that. I, don't, I can't imagine myself ever really getting into soloing. Um, or... Oh, you solo. I do. Followed I followed up the steps to my office. Uh, it's, it's true, and you know, in Alpine climbing and so forth, you know, you solo easy terrain all the time. Um, it really is just a matter of degree. But uh, you know, I think that the the experience of being up any on any terrain without a rope is so visceral that I, I agree with you. I can't imagine people taking it up in a fad sort of way. But um, you know, the there is this. I can imagine with that conflict. You know, you guys are at the center of a conversation. You're a public, you know, institution mm-hmm. and so forth. And I have to imagine. I have not talked to Alex about this, but or you guys about giving him this award, but you know, you guys are in giving him that award. You're not celebrating the radness of him doing something without a rope or like how badass it is. Right. You're almost like it's a celebration of like the mastery that enables that ascent
1: and the control and the, yeah, I think mastery is the right word.
0: And that's an unbelievably fine point, though, the difference between the two. You know, And there's a lot of opportunity for loss in translation there with people being like, oh, well, this is condoned behavior. And it's like, well, we're not condoning that. We're condoning the dedication.
1: But it's also as if you can put that behavior in a box and say that soloing is this thing. Soloing is not a discrete thing that can be put in a box. I, I, I'll never forget standing on a fire escape made of wood, that was 100 years old, on the outside of an old house in Boulder, having a party, and talking to someone who said, I would never solo. Well, they had soloed up this rickety old staircase that was attached to a building by a bunch of nails that they'd never inspected. I mean, there couldn't have been anything more dangerous than that, but they didn't recognize that at all as risky. But soloing on 5-5 five, five Rock? That was off there. That was unacceptable. Well,
0: then you're just asking for it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. This is awesome. Sure. Um, I hope that the community is able to focus more on the things that your mission tries to address, right? Because I think that moving forward, it would be really nice if we can choose the culture that we settle on deliberately and, yeah, and do that stuff. So I think
1: there's some truth to that. You know, let's be a little bit intentional about who we are as a group of people in the world.
0: Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with early bouldering pioneer John Sherman, one of my all-time favorites. In the meantime, find us on iTunes, give us a rating, or leave us some feedback. We really like hearing from you, and it helps other folks find the show. Have a great week.